Hello, everybody. It is great to be with you as we get ready to dive into God's Word together. I'm always excited when we have a chance to do this and share in this time, but I'm especially excited today because we have the opportunity to explore one of the most spiritual and practical topics simultaneously that we can, and that is around the issue and the topic of generosity. So as we get ready to explore that together today, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, this day may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have a bit of a theory this morning that I want to ask for your help to test out. I'm going to give you three verses, and I want to ask you to share back with me which one of the three you believe is the most well-known by the general public. So this is not your personal favorite verse, but it's the verse that you think the general public knows the best. And I'm going to share them with you in the order in which they appear in Scripture. And then after I share them with you, I'm just going to invite you to type into the chat uh, number one, number two, number three, and just in your opinion, which one of these is the most generally well-known? So number one, Psalm 23 verse one says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. A whole lot of people know that verse, but do you think that is the one that people know generally the most? Uh, the second one I'm going to give you comes in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's the second. And here's the third one. John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All right, if you would just take a moment and go ahead and type it in the chat. Number one, which is Psalm 23, one. Number two, which is Jeremiah 29, 11. Or number three, which is John chapter 3, verse 16. Which one do you believe most people, at least in our culture, know the best? So as you are typing that in there, we'll see how we match up compared to the general public. Uh, but as many of you might have guessed, the one that the general public knows the best is the John 3, 16 passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Of all the scriptures in the Bible, that is the one that most people in our culture would say they know the best. And that makes some sense because sometimes this is the verse that we see at football games. Uh, it's one of those verses that we learn at an early age. And so in general, that is one of the ones we generally know. Now, this is great in a lot of ways because this one verse is a general summary of the entire scripture narrative, or at least a whole lot of it. God giving his only son so that through Jesus, you and I might discover and live into eternal life now and forever. It is a powerful, powerful message all wrapped up into one verse. And here, there's so many things we could look at, but one of the things I find most interesting about this verse is notice one more time what it says. For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave his one and only son. So there's a direct linking between loving the world and what particular action by God? Giving. Giving is what most reflects the love of God, the nature of God, the God that we serve. 
which is interesting when you think about it because in our culture, we tend to associate being godlike as being all-powerful, being able to do whatever you want. So in Greek mythology, the head god named Zeus is portrayed as all-powerful and demanding to be served. Modern-day superheroes in different movies can do amazing things, and we're told that they have godlike qualities because of how powerful they are. But power is not the first thing associated with this God of the Scriptures, according to what we just heard this morning. So we begin to realize this truth, that God is the first and most generous giver. We don't hear about His power, we hear about His giving. So to say then that generosity is powerful because it is like God would be an understatement. I mean, generosity is powerful, but it is so much more than that as well. Generosity reveals the heart, the love of God, the God of the universe, and the one that we are called to model our lives after. We are now only a few weeks away from Advent, and then very shortly after that will be Christmas. And I realize that Christmas obviously has many uh, commercial elements related to it. But if we step back from the commercialization, one of the things that's intriguing to me about Christmas is that it's, we recognize that at Christmas, Jesus was born. Jesus was given into this world. It's the only time of the year where everyone gives gifts to everyone else. We only do this at Christmas. We don't do it at Easter. We don't do it at Thanksgiving. We don't do it on anniversaries. Even for other people's birthdays, they get a gift, but that's giving gifts to one person. Only at Christmas does everyone give gifts to everybody else. Why? I think it's incredibly appropriate for the why. Because giving gets at the theological heart of Christmas. It's a time when God gave His one and only Son. It's a time to realize where we can make this observation, as Tim Keller says. He says, Jesus is the only human being who was not just born, but given. So I believe this is a very significant reality for you and I to grasp. Yes, Jesus was born, but more than being born, He was given to us in birth. Now, this leads then to another question for us to wrestle with and also gets at the heart of the scripture passage we're looking at today, and that is, why was Jesus given to us? Why did God give Jesus to create this way of salvation? In other words, what was the motivation that God had in giving God's one and only Son? Well, John 3.16 gives us a clue here as well. If you were to start to say it with me, it begins, for God so loved the world. So right there, God loved the world. The motivation for God is loving. The motivation then for giving is loving. Please hear this. God did not give because God had to. Not because God wanted to look good, and not because God knew that this was the good or right moral thing to do, not because it eased God's conscience in any way, not to create some form of sin management plan. No, that's not why God gave. God is motivated by love, beautiful, significant love. So I want to ask us today, what is your motivation in giving? Do we give because we feel like we have to? Because we want to look good in front of others to ease our own conscience? Do we give so that we don't feel guilty ourselves? Or is our motivation out of love? 
When we are motivated by love, we give generously and regularly to God. Let me say that once more. When we are motivated out of love to give, we give generously and regularly to God. Now we have to be a little bit careful here, because uh, if we're not careful, it might seem like those points are, on, are in conflict that I just lifted up for us, because when we give regularly, we have to face the fact that we may not always feel like giving. I realize not every day or every week are we just like, hey, I want to give a whole lot and give generously and give sacrificially. We don't always feel that. <laughs> so what do we do in those instances? Do we stop giving simply because we don't feel like it? No. We remain anchored in our motivation in love in God. We remain motivated in God more so than our feelings for ourselves. So that it's that love, that motivation in God that drives us in our commitment to give to God. Because the truth is, we love that which we invest in. We see this maybe most clearly in successful marriages. There are days when one spouse may not necessarily feel like loving another spouse or sacrificing for the other spouse, but out of love, they choose day in and day out to love their other spouse no matter what, no matter how they feel, no matter how irritated that person might be, even if they had to be up all night because their spouse was snoring in the middle of the night. On those days, the day after, they may not feel like loving that spouse, but they choose to still invest in them and love them nonetheless. But what happens day after day after day after investing into each other in this way, even on the days they don't necessarily feel like it? Their love for each other only grows. You talk to a couple who's poured into each other regularly for 30, 40, 50 years of their lives, and I will show you a couple madly, deeply passionate in love with one another. Giving in God's church and to God it's kind of like that. We are motivated by love to do something that we may not always feel like doing, but the more we give regularly, the more in love we tend to fall because we're investing in that which we care about and we grow from that point on. This topic of motivation is central in the passage that we're going to be looking at today in 2 Corinthians. Specifically, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 12. And if you have your Bibles with you or on your phone, I invite you to look with me. The passage that we're looking at, it's the longest passage in all of the Bible on the specific topic of generosity, which means we should probably pay attention to it and take a look at it considering how significant it is. The basic background here is this. This is what Paul is addressing. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian church was wealthy and it was Gentile. Now, Gentile means that they were not Jewish people. They were not Israelite people. They were not part of God's original uh, Israelite salvation plan for the world as it were. They're outside of that. And yet, as the gospel is growing in the early New Testament, others are hearing about the good news of God, and in this case, Gentiles from Corinth. And here, Paul's trying to get funds from the Corinthian church, and he's trying to collect money because there's been a famine happening in Judea. So Paul wants to collect money from the Gentiles to send back to Judea where Jews, the people of God, are living and are struggling in scarcity from the famine that's going on. 
So this money that's being collected in Corinth is money they have to collect beyond themselves to send to people very, very different from themselves. The wealthy Gentiles sending money to the unwealthy Jews. But here's what's interesting. Paul's not just commanding the Gentile Corinthians to give. He's also appealing to their motivation to give. Paul could not be any more clear about this. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then we hear in 2 Corinthians 9, 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. So there is a practical element of meeting people's needs here, but there's also a reference to the condition of the heart, this overflowing of thankfulness, which is a reference to the motivation to give out of that sense of gratitude, out of that sense of love, and not just because they have to or should give because Paul has asked them. So the motivation is more than just meeting a need, even though that's good. It's also to express appreciation to God. Out of the overflow, the abundance of the heart, Paul says, I want you to give. Do more than just because you should. Do more than even just because I want to do this. Do this because you realize how blessed you have been. And out of that overflow, offer unto others. The reality is that God wants a cheerful giver, a giver filled with love of God, not a forced giver, not a I have to give because I've been asked to give kind of giver, not a I'll feel less guilty if I give kind of giver, none of that. Paul's telling us then that for God, this motivation, this condition of the heart, it's really important. It's not just the outward act of giving, it's what's going on inside the motivation as well. If we think that the motivation behind our actions is not very important, just consider a couple of these scenarios. For those of you who are married, imagine going to your spouse and you say something like, yeah, I married you back in the day, but I didn't really love you. I just didn't really want to do this thing called life alone. And marrying you kept me from being alone. Also, I think it's better that we have two incomes coming into our house rather than one. And so practically, it seemed a better living situation to marry someone else so that we could have those two incomes rather than just one. And so you're a good practical reality to live into and live with. But I didn't really love you when I married you. How well do you think that would go over? You did marry them, you did take that outward action, but if the motivation of love is not there, there's going to be problems. Or if you are married, imagine going to one of your, uh, sorry, if you're not married, imagine going to one of your friends and saying something like, yeah, I hang out with you at times, that's because I just really don't like to be lonely. I don't really like you very much, but it's better to be with you and have company rather than me sitting at home all by myself all the time. So yeah, I'll hang out with you sometimes. So the outward action of coming together and being together is there. But if your motivation is based solely on you and what you want and really not caring about the other person, that relationship ultimately is not going to go very far. Why was it that Jesus had so much trouble with the Pharisees? Outwardly, their actions were really good. They fulfilled the law, uh, they tithed, they did what they were supposed to, they fulfilled religious duties. But Jesus was so upset with them on such a regular basis because what they did was not motivated by love of God. 
Their actions were based on how it made them look. It was all about them. It wasn't about God. It wasn't about serving others. And that was absolutely putrid to Jesus because motivation matters. God cares about our motivation. God cares what's in our hearts and why we do what we do, which is why God wants to have a cheerful giver, people who are glad to live into generosity and to offer it abundantly before God. This condition of our heart matters to God in every scenario, but especially when it comes to the issue of giving. Because when it comes to the issue of giving and generosity, it's more complex than other situations. Because we can look at other outward actions <clears throat> and we can understand that in those scenarios, it's blatantly right or wrong. So for example, if we were to consider the issue of adultery, we know that that external action simply by sharing in it is wrong. But that's not the case when it comes to giving. Somebody can outwardly give and we can't really tell if in their hearts they're doing it out of love for God and motivated by love for God or motivated by their own greed or motivated by how they want to appear to others. And so it becomes a heart issue. It becomes something that only God can know and understand. So yes, outwardly, we might give something, but God will know exactly what's in our hearts. And if we're giving cheerfully, and for the glory and love of God, motivated by love of God, or for our own desire simply to appease our own conscience. One is welcomed by God, the other is not. What is your motivation for giving? What is your heart condition around giving? Do you give regularly or only as it crosses your mind? Do you give in order to get blessed or to be a blessing to others? Do you give out of compulsion or gratitude for all that God has blessed you with? Every week, every time we gather in worship before God Almighty, one of the things that we do besides praying, besides diving into scripture, is we provide an opportunity to give, to give back to God, to express our gratitude for all that God has done for us. We give regularly so that we can be a blessing to others. We give regularly to model the love of Jesus. We give regularly out of love to God. We give regularly to be like God. We give regularly because we are motivated by the love of Christ in order to share God's love in our world. We give regularly to say thank you and we give regularly to say to God, we love you. That is the intent of our motivation in our giving. It's great to sing about God, which we do very often. It's great to learn about God in sermons. It's great to hear from God and connect with God in scripture and in reading and in prayer. But if we really wanna be like God, then we give regularly. We give sacrificially. We give motivated out of love for God and others. It's the difference between giving because it's some kind of business transaction or a holy, sacred offering made to God in love. Because they can both look the same on the outside, but it's the motivation of our hearts that makes the difference. What's your motivation in giving? As far as God is concerned, greed or generosity is most a matter of the heart. And this is one of the reasons we're always called to give more to take our next step because we want to grow in love and in generosity. Otherwise, we don't have a heart of generosity. 
Now, here's some good news as we're thinking through this. Even if we would say to ourselves, you know, honestly, truthfully, I don't have a strong motivation to give out of love at this point. Even if our heart condition is not necessarily at this point a God-pleasing one, there are specific steps we can take so that our heart condition does come more in alignment with God's, so that our motivation does line up with what God desires for us. And so here are a couple steps that we can take to start to give more regularly in our own lives. Number one, get a general vision for the harvest that your giving can produce. So we hear this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. When Paul shares these words, we have to be really careful about what he's offering and understand the metaphor that he is sharing. It's very easy to hear this verse and think, if I give a whole lot of money away, then I'm gonna get a whole lot of money back. In other words, the more I give, the richer I will get. However, we have to be careful because that's not really the metaphor that Paul is using here. And if we're not careful, that takes us into the direction of a prosperity gospel that's not being shared here. The metaphor is not saying we get back the same thing as we gave out. Remember, this is an agricultural metaphor. So we're giving out seeds. We're throwing out seeds. But what we get back then are not seeds in the same form. What we're getting back are fruits for the seeds that we threw out. So the more seeds that we throw out, the more fruit that will look different will come back to us. No farmer wants to throw out a whole bunch of seeds and only get those same seeds back in return. They want to throw those seeds out and get the fruits of those seeds. They want the hay, the apples, the corn, the beans, the you name it, back for the seeds that they threw out. This year, for the first time, my parents planted a pumpkin patch. And so they planted seeds. They threw seeds out. Here are a couple of pictures of what came back to them. Not seeds that looked the same, but these wonderful pumpkins that now we get to enjoy. So when Paul says the fruits of the money will come back, he's saying what you get back will be different than what you put out. The fruits that return will look different than the seeds that went out. And Paul says this then in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, As it's written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. This is a reference to Psalm 112, verse 3, where we're told that righteousness endures. So part of what Paul is doing here is saying when you throw the seeds out, when you give generously, part of what will come back in the fruits are fruits of righteousness. Now, in the Old Testament, righteousness does not just mean a moral goodness that we think of today. It doesn't mean just a sense of justice that we might think of today. Rather, the Hebrew word for righteousness means acting in accordance with divine or moral law so that right relationship might occur with God and with one another. This is about people re relating rightly with one another. In other words, when we are generous, when we sow generously, what we are helping to foster are these fruits of righteousness, with, which really means fruits of right relationship. Again, with God, with one another, with creation. So when we give and when we sow, some righteousness of fruits that begin to occur are things like poverty being healed, families being put back together, healing happening in society. What's happening? Right relationships are being restored. When we give regularly, when we sow those seeds, 
We're helping to bring goodness into God's world and healing into God's world so that right relationship, again, between people and God and creation might occur. When we use our gifts to scatter widely, we help bring fruits of righteousness and healing into our world. A few weeks ago, it was, just, it was a normal day in the life of First Church, and I got to the end of the day, and it just struck me all that I had seen. Because on that particular day, I had seen one couple come in for some premarital counseling. There were people coming in for helping hand, and our waiting room was full as people were waiting for some help, literally to help keep their lights on or to have their heat remain on. I had an opportunity that day to visit with First Nursery, over 120 kids receiving weekly love and a formation, instruction, and foundation in Jesus Christ. I had a chance to run into people who were preparing that day for Faith Zone, so people going to the middle school to be with kids in that setting and, and to share God's love in some different ways there. I had an opportunity to experience somebody who was exploring their own potential call into ministry and what that might look like. It was a day that we were making preparations for Disciples Journey Step 2, which is about discovering our gifts. And it was also a day back then, a number of weeks ago, when the devotional materials for the Wisdom Series were being created. And I, it just hit me, like the helping those in our community, preparing for a life of faithfulness, uh, setting a foundation upon which to build our lives, diving deeper into discipleship, uh, you know, transformation happening at all age levels, it just hit me on this normal day that here is church working at least to a degree as God would intend. Right relationships happening between people and with God. And it's all happening because you and others chose to give, chose to sow widely and generously. I find this so exciting, not to mention continuing to walk in partnership with groups like Dwell and Family Promise and the Women's Center, uh, Expectation Women's Center and Shepherd of the Streets and International Justice Mission on top of that. Not to mention our week of transform and, and the time of Code Blue that's gonna start again in January and having the chance to celebrate first night every single week. And not to mention, even today as we're celebrating the 46 kids who've been on retreat the last couple of days, all of these things can happen. All of these fruits of righteousness can happen because of your giving and your generosity. You are sowing seeds that allow for righteousness to occur, right relationship, growing in God and with one another. That's an incredible, holy, blessed, wonderful thing. And I hope as we catch that vision, that the condition of our heart becomes one where we are motivated to only want to give more, to see that kind of righteousness flourishing in our world. So that's one way that we can take a step towards having a more generous heart. But also we can do this. We don't just get a vision of the harvest in general. We also get a specific vision of the Savior himself. So if we were to continue here just a few verses beyond what we read this morning, we would hear in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What is the indescribable gift? It is Jesus himself. It's not an accident that at the end of this longest passage that explicitly talks about generosity, that this indescribable gift of Jesus Christ is explicitly mentioned. Because remember, Jesus wasn't just born, he was given. As Keller notes, Jesus is the only human being who was ever born older than his parents. 
He wasn't just born, because again, John 3.16, he was given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or as Isaiah 9.2 reminds us, unto us a son is given. Or as Romans 8.32 puts it, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. Jesus was the crown jewel of heaven, the crown jewel that heaven has ever had. And God gave him for us, motivated out of love for us. So if we really want to be like God, we learn to give regularly and generously motivated by love. Can I ask today, how are you choosing to give? What's your motivation? With what intentionality? This year, if you've never made a commitment where you give irregularly, would you choose to begin giving regularly? If you do give regularly, would you consider taking a sacrificial step beyond whatever you have to this point? If you've never made a pledge, would you consider doing so? Next week, we'll come back together and have a chance to make those pledges with one another. Will you give with a generous heart, not because I'm asking, not because you should, not under compulsion, but with joy and thanksgiving out of all that God has done for us. Sometimes I hear people say things like, well, I've earned everything I have. Well, no doubt there's a factor in choosing to work hard. But if we have the health to work and a brain that functions and lungs that let us breathe and legs that let us walk somewhere, those are gifts given. We didn't earn any of those things. And the fact that we can earn any money here in the year 2022 reminds us we were not born to a peasant family in the 12th century in France. We weren't born on a mountain in Tibet in the 13th century because if we had been, we could have worked as hard then as we are now and not had hardly anything to show for it. So yes, we still choose to work, but all that we have is ultimately a gift from God. And when that sinks in, we are motivated to give generously ourselves. I don't know how many of you know the name Jim Redman. If you don't know his name, you might remember his story. Jim, though, passed away at the age of 81 back in early October of this year. Jim was the father of the Olympian Derek Redman, and Jim was that individual who helped his injured son Derek across the finish line in the 400-meter semifinal at Barcelona in the 1992 Olympics. Many have described it as one of the most poignant and iconic moments in Olympic history. Nobody seems to remember who actually won the 400 meters that year in 1992. It was a man named Quincy Watts, by the way. But almost everybody remembers the image from that year. When Derek, at about the 250 meter mark, pulled up lame because he had torn his hamstring and he could run no farther. And his father, watching from the stands, did something incredible. He jumped out of the stands and raced down to help his injured son cross the finish line with all the world watching. Michael Johnson, who would eventually win four gold medals in the Olympics, described it this way. He said, the love and support Derek's father had for his son was on full display in front of the entire world in that difficult moment. Former President Barack Obama once said when the, about this moment, when the human spirit triumphed over injury that should have been impossible to overcome, we witnessed something incredible happening. I love this story 
because we see Derek who gave himself regularly in discipline to become the best runner possible to become an Olympian. But we also see Derek's father who had spent a lifetime consistently loving his son, consistently pouring into him. And in his son's greatest moment of need, without hesitation, filled with love, motivated by love, did whatever he had to do to go and support his son. Here's my question. What caused Jim to do something so incredible? What caused Jim to give himself in that way to his son? Of course, his love for his son. Now, I realized this was Jim's son, but after a lifetime of regularly loving him and pouring into him, Jim, when given the opportunity, motivated by love, did not hesitate to do whatever he needed to do to help his son when his son needed it most. And what did God the Father do for his sons and daughters in their moment of need? God did whatever he had to do. He gave himself fully through his own son for his sons and daughters, for you and for me. And now you and I have the opportunity for others, sons and daughters, to share the love of God Almighty, to share the love of the living God as found in Jesus Christ, to share the love of Christ that lives within us. And hopefully, hopefully we, motivated by love, in the model of God our Father, will do whatever it takes to give ourselves unreservedly for the sake of others, just like God our Father has done for us. What's your motivation to give? Would you pray with me? Lord God, help us today to examine our own hearts and motivations carefully. God, help us to be motivated to give generously and regularly, not out of compulsion, God, but out of love, that we would truly be cheerful givers. Today, Lord, we ask that you inspire us and motivate us to give generously so that we might live in right relationship with you and so that all that we know might live in right relationship with you. Lord God, we want to be cheerful givers because you first gave to us. Lord, today, motivate us to love and to give as you have loved and given to us. This we pray in the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus together. Amen. Last week, you might remember that we concluded our time together by offering a simple action that rather than holding fists closed, we open them before God. I want to invite you wherever you are right now, if you would just take your hands and open them as a gesture and expression to God this day as we receive this benediction. Go this day in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, remembering the one who loved us so much that he gave his one and only Son that all might know and believe him. Let us go in the same way, with the same open heart, offering and giving ourselves unto the world as cheerful givers, that they too may know the love and the grace and the beauty found in Jesus Christ.
go in peace and serve the Lord.